Hey, it's Sunday, September the 20th. This is John Odom. We're going to hop into the scriptures for today. Uh, The mission of our church is to cultivate a community shaped by the gospel for the renewal of all things. And one of the ways that we're we're pursuing this gospel-shaped community this fall is in a study of the book of Ephesians, a 10-week study. And today we are in the second week of that study. If you missed, you can go back and listen to the first sermon from uh, last week. Let's hop in. So I wonder if you can tell me if you ever had this experience. Uh, There's a skill that you've worked really hard to cultivate. So maybe it's playing an instrument, maybe it's dancing in the ballet or perfecting a gymnastics routine. I mean, that's obviously the case for me. Uh, And you know just how difficult it is to do that thing with excellence. And then you see somebody else who has so mastered that skill, that craft, that when they do it, it looks like it's as easy as tying their shoes. I mean, they've so perfected this thing that it just looks uh, simple for them. It's first nature, no big deal. I'm a big music guy. And so when I watch, you know, uh, people like Jacob Collier or Yo-Yo Ma or Chris Thiele or Bela Fleck, play these extraordinarily difficult pieces of music and they're doing it just joyfully and it seems like they're doing it casually. I mean, at times I've been moved to tears, literally moved to tears to see them just make these beautiful sounds with what it looks like such ease. And for you, you know, it may be in watching a virtuoso cook or act or uh, debate or paint or sculpt And knowing the countless hours over many years that they had to put into like honing their craft, you can't help but just exhale and sigh in awe or weep for beauty's sake at this thing that they've done. Can you relate to having an experience like this? Maybe it's for you accountants. It's like I saw the perfect spreadsheet. I don't know what your version of this is. But you have this moment where you see somebody doing something so well And then do you know what it's like when you're like entranced in the power and transcendence of their work and then you look at the person to your right or your left and they are bored to tears. They're like checking their phone, they're tapping their feet, just waiting for this whole thing to be over. And as you walk out of the experience of seeing this play or this piece of music, you're like wiping your eyes, exultant and reveling in the glory of what you've just experienced. And the person you're with is smacking their gum going, so you want to go get a bite to eat after this? You're thinking, did you not see what I just saw? Were we not in the same room? And the truth is, it's like we weren't. Uh, They didn't get it. They weren't able to see what you saw. They weren't able to hear what you heard. And this is such a heartbreaking experience to have had a glimpse of glory and then to see it dishonored, maligned, or maybe like worst of all, trivialized and ignored. This is how I feel as an avid reader of J.R.R. Tolkien, and I'm on my fifth way through his you know, seminal works. And there are moments where uh, I just weep at the beauty of what he's written, this epic narrative that he's crafted. I finished The Return of the King uh, for, I think, the fourth time a couple of weeks ago, and I was just glorying in the intricacy and the depth and richness and thoughtfulness of his stories. And finishing the book, like Tolkien's works, like it just makes me love God and love the world even more. And then I bring up these books to other people and they're like, I don't really do fantasy stories. Like fantasy stories, this is wisdom literature, come on. 
And they're like, okay, are you going to dress up as Dumbledore for Halloween? And I'm like, no, that's Harry Potter. And the full glory of my dweeb identity is unveiled before all of you and all of them in that moment. It's so sad. There's something that you love, that you know is beautiful, that you know is world changing, and other people just don't get it. And a similar thing can happen when some people have conversations about God and talk about God. There are those people who would reduce God to being like a mere moral watchdog or a party pooper. They think about God as being a divine finger pointer who keeps scolding humanity into eating its vegetables. Or their imagination for God has been so contorted and stained by people who misuse and weaponize the Bible. And for them, to talk about God is to speak of something unholy or anti-human, abusive, or even non-existent. And that might be the case for you, as some of you who are watching or you who are, are listening right now. The way that God or Christianity was presented to you was so off-base, so like uh, colored by prejudice or a mean spirit, or there was such a misalignment between the words that people were speaking to you and the way that they conducted themselves in the world and the way that they treated others that you just wrote them off that you felt like you had to unlearn a lot of what you had heard from them because the gospel as it came to you was anything but good news. Or maybe growing up for you or living in the Bible Belt, you heard the rules, the commands, like the to-dos and the to-bes about Christianity, but you, you heard about all of it without an accurate and robust understanding of the one who gave the commands in the first place. And not really knowing what God was really like or how God felt about you changed the whole message and the whole experience. As Paul begins this this letter to the Ephesians, we read the greeting last week in our study. His tone and his words reflect a person who's caught up in the beauty and the mystery and the glory of something that has captured his heart and his imagination. And he begins not with this simplistic, small-minded, moralistic call to do goodery, nor does he begin with this guilt-laden suggestion for how to clean yourself up. Instead, he begins with this enraptured doxology, this love-drenched song of thanks to God the Father for everything that he's done for us in Jesus. I'm going to read verses uh, 3 through 6 of Ephesians 1. Paul says, praise be to the God and the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And and as I read this, I want you to listen to all these verbs here. Praise to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and his will. Oh, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he's freely given us in the one that he loves. Now, that's a lot of like intricate beauty in these words. Try to take all of this in. Paul says, listen to this great thing that God has done for us. He's blessed us. He chose us before the world existed. 
In love, he planned all along to adopt us, making heirs of his family and his kingdom. And this glorious work, says Paul, carries the aroma of grace. It's overflowing with the delight of God, and it's made available to us through the beloved Son of the Father, a gift free to us but costly to God. We believe as followers of Jesus that the gospel is that in a mystery beyond our comprehension, everything that happened with Jesus of Nazareth in the middle of history somehow altered everything that followed. And it was also the fulfillment of everything that God had done beforehand in and through the people of Israel. What happened with Jesus in the middle of history tied all of human history together, past, present, and future. And somehow what happened with Jesus, his death was more than an execution by the state or the consequence of hacking off the wrong people, that it was actually a public display of the wisdom of God in overturning the forces of darkness and deception. That what looked like a defeat was in God's reality the beginning of the undoing of death itself. In the story of Jesus that we've inherited, we believe that love was stamped onto the soil of creation when Jesus gave his life for the life of the world. And so his death, and even more so his resurrection, unleashed into the world the possibility and the promise of a new start, of renewal, of regeneration. And it was this promise and possibility, this story, this inheritance, and in fact, every spiritual blessing in Christ that the Ephesians and all who of us who would hope in Jesus became beneficiaries of, through faith in Christ. And Paul just exults in reflecting on all of this. Isn't this glorious? This beautiful thing that has happened for all of creation according to the will and the delight of God the Father in sending Jesus. Isn't it beautiful? Paul's words are just dripping with joy and gratitude. There's a fourth century church father by the name of John Chrysostom uh, who said about this passage. He said, The wonder is not only that the Father gave his Son, but that he did so in this way, by sacrificing the one that he loved. It's astonishing that he gave the Beloved for those who hated him. And then hear this sentence, this is so good. He says, See how highly he honors us. If even when we hated him and were enemies, he gave the beloved, what will he not do for us now? Reflecting on this passage, he says, see how the Father honors us. Paul continues in the passage beginning at verse 7, expounding on the benefits given to us in Jesus. He says, in him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us. With all wisdom and understanding, he made known to us the mystery of his will. And then we go to the end of verse 10. To bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. Think about everything that we've just read. Think about the words that have been applied to us in Jesus. When we talk about God, 
when we talk about the, the Christian ethics, how we're meant to behave in the world, when we talk about like being a community shaped by the gospel or tr- trying to follow in the way of Jesus, if it doesn't flow from this kind of posturing, this uh, attitude and conception of what God is like, this doxological delight in the kindness of God toward us in Jesus, what are we even talking about? Or in this season in our country, when politicians and leaders are appealing to us and trying to win us over by referencing their own Christian faith, if it's not evidenced by the gentleness and the wisdom and the kindness and the other-honoring spirit of Christ, if it doesn't evoke a, a generosity and a mercy in their manner of being as it does for Paul here, I have to ask, what are they even talking about? But also, when we talk about ourselves and reflect on ourselves and investigate the self-talk that's auto-playing in our minds and our hearts, and when we talk about our fellow Christians, other brothers and sisters in Christ, if our language for them isn't reminiscent of the tone and the words and the sentiments of Paul in describing how God sees us and of what God has done for us in Jesus, there is evidence that our hearts and our minds are due to be renewed and transformed even more, to align in greater measure with this new reality given for us, like extended to us in the mercy of God shown in Jesus on the cross and even Jesus now advocating for us at the right hand of the Father. When we talk about God, when we talk about faith, Christianity, and even when we talk about ourselves, it should rhyme with what Paul is, this vision Paul is casting for us in Ephesians chapter 1, this story that's being told for us and retold for us in the gospel. And, and you know, it's, it's funny. If, if this is how God sees us, as ones who are forgiven and redeemed and blessed and chosen and loved, why is it so hard for us to see ourselves in this way? Why is it so hard for us to see each other in this way? And if this like new seismic reality is extended to us in Jesus, why don't our actions flow from it and, and reflect this beloved identity that we've been given in Jesus? Well, in part, I think it's because we've been institutionalized. We've been institutionalized by sin. And some of you, immediately your mind goes to uh, the, the movie The Shawshank Redemption uh, with Tim Robbins that came out, you know, probably two decades ago. I don't know. And in the movie, Tim Robbins' character is wrongly uh, convicted of murdering his wife. And he's sent to Shawshank Prison. And prison changes a man. Prison changes a person. And, and Tim Robbins' character uh, like sees over time what being incarcerated for the long haul does to a soul and how a person's spirit can get broken. It can be institutionalized where prison gets into their heart. In the movie, there's a fellow inmate uh, by the name of Brooks who, after so many years behind bars, finally gets released and he's given his freedom, honest work, He's given a place to live and liberty to do as he pleases, but the freedom is just too much for him to bear because he, even though his body is outside of prison, his heart is still very much imprisoned. His mind is still very much institutionalized by the four walls of jail that had been his reality for so long. 
And the characters reflect of Brooks that he's been institutionalized and can no longer take advantage of a life of freedom. And so in the story, the character gives in to his own fatalistic fears and limitations. In a similar way, many of us have grown so accustomed to a heart and a mind that are locked up behind the bars of guilt and shame. We can't undo the wrong that we've done. We can't shake the labels that, that uh, we or other people have placed on us. We can't imagine ourselves as objects worthy of love. We can't rewrite the narrative of you know, abandonment or, or a lack of worth that we inherited from our families of origin. We can't unlearn our old identities. And so we medicate and we fabricate and we hide we overcompensate or we ignore what ails us. We get discouraged and we lose hope and we live these lives of quiet or overt desperation where our outward reality begins to reflect our inward reality. But it doesn't have to be this way. In his letter to the church at Rome, Paul said in chapter 12, he said, look, don't conform anymore. Don't live in alignment anymore with the pattern of this world. Instead, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't conform anymore to the way everybody else sees things. Be transformed and let God reshape your reality. Our minds, our identities, the, the stories we tell ourselves need to be swapped out with the help of the Holy Spirit, and then we'll have a clue, an idea of how to begin to live rightly in the world. Could it be, entertain with me, that many of our struggles are not chiefly behavioral, although they manifest in our behavior and our choices relationally and in managing ourselves, could it be that many of our struggles are not merely behavioral issues, but they're actually identity issues? That not knowing and, and truly appreciating and living in light of our intrinsic worth in Christ, we languish and we squirm and we fight just to find a way to be okay in our skin. That like little children who are like feeling off or feeling unloved or insecure, we act out as adults, as teenagers, as like octogenarians. We live in these shameful ways that are less than what we could be in Christ because we don't even appreciate what that means. How our story of being in Christ has rewritten our reality and completely changed the game. And all the while, the Lord is beckoning us near, attempting to remind us of the truth of who we really are. James Bryan Smith, in his book, The Good and Beautiful God, that uh, many folks in our church have read, uh, tells the story of working with this young man who dealt with a very common struggle for, for a young man who's looking at pornography. And this guy had tried everything he could to quit, to alter his behavior, but nothing was helping him to you know, make progress. And in conversation, you know, Jim Smith, the author, shifted from talking about behavior to beginning to talk about identity. And he, and he pushed this young Christian man, you know, he'd kind of been in the church forever. He pushed him on, like, do you know what it means that you are in Christ? And not really being able to articulate, not really being conversant about what it meant for him and letting Jesus reshape his identity, being in Christ, uh, the guy's like, look, just tell me. Like, what does it mean that I'm in Christ? 
And the conversation led to this passage in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, where Paul says, look, if anyone is in Christ, they are, present tense, a new creation. The old has gone and the new has come. And Smith leverages this passage of Scripture in 2 Corinthians 5 with this picture of a caterpillar the analogy of a caterpillar. And in its caterpillar state, it is bound by gravity to uh, the ground. It's crawling and incapable of flight. But when a caterpillar goes in chrysalis, <laughs> chrysalis, interestingly enough, has its root word being Christ. When it goes in chrysalis, a transformation begins to happen. The old literally passes away and the new like emerges into the world. Because of this experience of being in chrysalis, this caterpillar is now renamed as a butterfly incapable of defying gravity. And this is what Paul is getting at in his conversation with the Ephesians. And, and I think it's the conversation that we need to have at a local church level and a family level and, and like in, in reflecting on your own identity and story. Being in Christ, we've been given a new identity. We have become beneficiaries of every spiritual blessing in Christ. We have been chosen for adoption. We have been loved we have been redeemed. We have been forgiven. We have been given this like promised gift of the Holy Spirit. We've inherited a new identity, a new story, a new family, a new purpose, a new hope. But the invitation for us is to begin to live in light of this new reality. To begin to believe about ourselves and begin to see our world through the lens of this new reality of everything that has happened in the middle of history that rewrites all of history in the person of Jesus Christ and what he's accomplished for us, for us in his death, in his resurrection, in his ascension. The invitation for us is to let this new narrative reform and transform our minds. To rewrite our, our habits to help to heal our hangups and to invite us into greater freedom. Now, some of you may be watching and you've heard like a gospel presentation at some point and it just didn't click. And there's something about the telling of it now where you're like, I think I'm beginning to understand. I just ask you to reflect. Like, do you believe that this story is not just for the world and not just for church folks, but like, do you believe that the benefits of the Christ story, the Christ reality, are meant to be channeled and applied to you? Like, do you accept that what happened in Jesus in the middle of history is meant to and does have bearing on your own self-narrative right now, late, much later in history? That even now, like the Spirit of God is at work, like beckoning you to accept this new story, this new identity, this new family, this new narrative for yourself. Like, do you believe it? And whatever this looks like for you, whatever process this takes, I would urge you to just say yes. To express to God, I can't fully appreciate like what the deal is with this. 
But whatever is going on in Jesus and however, like, like whatever Paul is talking about these spiritual blessings, I want in on that. So just like be a part of my life. Give me your spirit. Do the stuff that you do in your own way. I just urge you to say it. To let yourself be in Christ and to invite the spirit of God to transform your mind and to change your life. Maybe you're a person who you've walked with Jesus for a long time and your behavior is way out of whack. Your ethics are way out of whack and it's an identity issue. You've forgotten who you are. You've forgotten the new story that you've been given and Jesus is saying, hey, let me, let me convince you again of what's true of you. It's an invitation for you and for me to allow the Spirit of God to remind us who we are and therefore how we are in the world. Don't conform any more to the pattern of this world. That's not our story. We're followers of Christ. Instead, be transformed, be changed by the renewing of your mind. Then you're going to be able to test and approve and see what God's perfect will is for you in the world. Paul writes to the holy and chosen people in Ephesus. And God addresses the holy and chosen people in Tulsa. Remember who you are. Loved, chosen, adopted, forgiven, redeemed, purposed in Christ to be part of the renewal of all things that will culminate when Christ returns in glory and we feast at his heavenly banquet. This is our inheritance. Let's not settle for anything less. Let's pray together. Lord, would you bless every person who listens with the gift to hear and receive and accept the truth of who you say we are? Would you call home and forgive the sinner and the wanderer and the exile and the prodigal Would you convict and woo and invite the Jesus follower who has drifted? And would you just refresh and refill us with your spirit that like living anchored in this identity, we can do the Jesus stuff and live like Jesus people, bearing the aroma of Christ in in our families and in our church, in our place of work and in our city. Lord, send your spirit and do this work to the glory of the Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Love you, friends. Uh, We worship every Sunday morning at 9.15 on our lawn, and we'd love for you to be a part of it. Uh, Some of you aren't able to join because you're at a distance or you're not comfortable uh, coming out of your homes just yet. We'll continue worshiping uh, together online. God bless you. Love you. We'll see you around.